Happy New Year, all. Welcome to Rock Rit. I'm your host, Armand Savagin. Thanks so much for joining us for yet another exploration in rock criticism and old school fanzine culture. We're excited to be kicking off the year with a doozy of an interview with the one and only Brad Lappin of Damage. Now, Damage was a classic tabloid punk fanzine slash magazine that published 13 issues between 1979 and 1981. It was based in the San Francisco area and set out to fill the shoes of V. Vale's classic Search and Destroy magazine. And that meant incendiary coverage of Bay Area musical happenings, as well as coverage of interesting sounds coming out of LA, London, Tokyo, and elsewhere. To give you an idea of its musical range, Damage ran pieces on The Offs, Rocky Erickson, Crime, Undertones, Madness, John Cale, James Blood Ulmer, LA Hardcore, DNA, and tons more. It also devoted space to underground film, art, fashion, and it had a definite transgressive, non-suburban Northern Cali flavor to it. Damage was ostensibly Brad Lappin's magazine, but from the start it was a community effort with a lively Anything Goes Sure will publish that spirit and a willingness to trust the very tastes of its contributors. Before getting to the interview, a big shout out to Ryan Richardson, punk collector and archivist for connecting me with Brad in the first place. Ryan is the guy responsible for digitizing all 13 issues of Damage. For this and other amazing zines that Ryan's digitized, please visit circulationzero.com and prepare to be stunned. Enough yammering, let's get on with the show. Please enjoy this chat with the one and only Brad Lappin of Damage on Rock Rit. Hey, hey. hey, good to connect. How are you, Brad? I'm fine, thank you. Good, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure. I'm sorry it took so long. It makes me feel that I have a much more complicated life than I really do. <laughs> but it has been a it has been a bit. I guess the biggest problem is you know we're going back and forth between here and Italy, and so it's just been this particular year has been particularly crazy. So my husband uh, is a professor of Roman art at Emory University. Okay. We've been living here after, since he got out of graduate school in really about 90, since 1992. So and that, of course, is the Rome connection. Prior to that, I had never been really abroad. I'd been to Mexico and Canada, but I had never really been anywhere else. So Sounds like you, you still lead an adventurous life. And huh. I, I imagine as, as somebody who did a magazine like Damage, you had a pretty interesting life leading up to that as well, too. Were you from the Bay Area, Brad? No, I'm from Los Angeles originally, born and raised there. And I left Los Angeles in 1970, the fall of 1977, kind of in desperation because I had never lived anywhere else. And I didn't like, I I had a job that I did kind of like, working for CARE, the big, uh, you know, aid agency, non-governmental aid agency, like care packages. And I was raising money for them um, writing. And, um, but I really wanted to get out of LA. I just wanted to to live in another city. And I almost moved to New York and that fell through. And then I just said, fuck it, I'm just gonna move to to San Francisco. I had friends, a couple friends there and I loved the city. I mean, in those days it was, you know, paradise in many ways. So I did, uh, me and, and at that time, a boyfriend, uh, and I just took off. We, he was working in the porn, he was working in porn, porn in porno shops and I was working for care and we both quit our jobs and moved up to the Bay Area. Were you guys into punk rock? Was subversive kind of weird rock well, music? I had been, I had been living underground. I had been, I had been involved in, in uh, as a writer, really from the time I was in college and really was very interested in avant-garde art and avant-garde experimental writing. And then I was working with a group of artists who were kind of co-op and uh, called Science Holiday, led Mm -hmm. by Scott Armstrong, um, who's still a great friend and and colleague. And uh, we were doing um, chapbooks and uh, performance art, things like that. And you know the entire punk rock scene at that time was really was driving most of its energy from art school dropouts and and art damaged kids like me and and everyone I knew. So yeah, I mean, with the, you know, the music scene, I was slightly involved in Los Angeles in it, 
But when I men, went to San Francisco, I got very much involved in a in other avant-garde, not so much in the punk scene initially. Mm -hmm. I was watching Target on TV a lot and seeing what was going on. And I was living in North Beach, so I was really close to the blue eye, and they're like a few blocks away. <laughs> and um, but it, I and then and then I guess my uh, some kids moved in upstairs from where I was living, and they were. Uh, with Billy of the Offs band, really famous San Francisco band, his girlfriend, uh, who was also in the first female band. Uh, and they were, you know, so we were, we got very friendly and then they broke up and Billy moved in with me. <laughs> so it all kind of came together in a kind of crazy, bizarre way. I just started going to shows and meeting more people and hanging out with everybody. And I was still doing a lot of writing. And at that time I was doing commercial, I was had just started to do, build a career as a commercial writer, doing um, copy copywriting, that kind of stuff to make some bucks. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I was really poor, but I was, you know, you could live without a lot of money in those days. And I mean, a show cost five bucks. Yeah. You know, that was, yeah. I mean, a show cost five bucks and cigarettes were like, I don't know, under a buck. And so you could live on, and you know, you could live on, on shows and cigarettes, I guess. <laughs> I don't think you need and anything I was, else. I was writing, and I was writing. And I guess at that point, I, I, I decided to engage in a kind of serious, I was trying to, of course, treat everything as both as fun because it was fun and also as a kind of serious art experience. And I wrote an essay at that time called Punk and the Avant-Garde, discussing, mm. which was published in Ear Magazine, a little, a little magazine out of San Francisco at that time. And it was quite influential in bringing a lot of people who had been skeptical and thinking of it was just pop music yeah. uh, into the scene. So it's really, that's was where I came from. Did San Francisco feel a bit more like home to somebody coming from an art school underground music background did it feel like those two worlds kind of overlapped a bit more Absolutely. in the north well yes because it was a smaller city it was a city that had a very long and glorious history of supporting artists and outsiders so here with with the scene in the incipient scene I mean, there were just lots of artists and and outside people, undergrounders, living there, and you could because it was cheap. Mm -hmm. And there was a infrastructure in place that allowed you to um, to survive without having to work too much. And of course, you know that was the key. I mean, none of us wanted to work, and uh, the, none of us wanted to be part of the machinery of what we saw as oppression and uh, and repression. So we thought, hey, we can live here and, you know, and rents are cheap. I mean, they weren't as actually, they weren't really that cheap, but, you know, they were, we, a lot of us lived together with lots of people. So mm -hmm. my rent could get like a hundred bucks or 200 bucks. You could kind of make that easily doing something. And I was making more than that because eventually I started getting all of these writing gigs and I was making more money than I had ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. Of course, fueled the beginning of damage because I had money to spend. So I said, "Oh, I'll publish a magazine." <laughs> was was it just like that, kind of on a whim? No, it, well, it wasn't like that. What happened was that San Francisco had its own very powerful, great magazine, Search and Destroy, which mm -hmm. is, uh, published by Vale. And uh, we, and I was a great fan of the magazine. And uh, then in um, 1979, Vale decided that he wanted to suspend or give up publication. He was tired, burned out, and he thought, uh, whether he was right or wrong, of course, is a great debate, um, that that the real energy of the scene had kind of fizzled out. It had gotten too popular. It was not avant-garde enough. It wasn't confrontational enough. And so he decided to cease publication. At that time, my friend Peter Belsito, uh, who graphic artist and who I knew from other, from just other projects, um, came, approached me and said, and we were hanging out a bit, and approached me and said, Let, "Why don't we do a magazine? And you can edit it, and I'll do the graphics, and you know, let's put on a show, kids." <laughs> that was basically the thing, and I was like, "Hey, I've got extra money, and he's got some money, and 
okay, let's put out a magazine. And we just, I started asking around and I said, I started talking to friends and other writers and graphic artists and photographers. And all of a sudden, what do you know? I had like dozens of people working for me. <laughs> working for, or working for damage, put it that way. And um, and everybody was really excited. So we put together the first issue and threw Jello Biafra on the cover. And, and then we ended up publishing for a couple of years. That was basically how it started. Uh, and we, we, of course, disagreed. We thought there still was lots of energy in the scene. But I certainly understand and appreciate and, and respect Vale's decision about ceasing publication. He wasn't particularly happy when we started publishing. Didn't have his blessing. Did he see it no, as- No, no, we definitely did not have his blessing. Not, not it at all. A lot of the search and destroy people really were, saw damage as a usurper and really uh, hadn't, out, could, couldn't countenance us at all. So I've never been friends. I can never say I've been friends with Vale. I mean, we've never been enemies, but we've never been friends. Hmm. I, on the on the other hand, you know, really made it my business to be as friendly and non-confrontational with people as I as I could be. So I made lots of friends, starting with uh, Robert Hanrahan of the Deaf Club and Dirk Dirksen of the Mabuhai. Uh, these so are these are popular venues from were the two from... most important venues at that time. And I interviewed both of them for damage. It was the first time anyone had really talked to them mm -hmm. and said, what, what is it you're doing? And Dirksen in particular had, had you know, this amazing personality that and persona, a public persona in which he was confrontational with the audience. So he was always, you know, being attacked. His nose had been broken multiple times by dudes jumping up on stage and punching him in the nose. <laughs> I saw it several times myself. Uh, and, you know, he he was, he uh, um, really came to become one of them, a very close friend. And so did Robert, who um, I'm dead naming at this point because Robert is now Daphne. Uh, and I hope you'll forgive me for doing that. But uh, both of them became very close friends and other people in the scene. I mean, I, I really did make it my business to try and make friends with people, hang out with them as much as possible, um, and give them a fair shake in, in the business of, you know, being the paper of record, which is what we became de facto. Some of my favorite interviews in Damage are these ones with non-musicians. Right. I love the, the band coverage as well, too, of course, but... Yeah interviewing promoters, interviewing artists and filmmakers, interviewing record label guys, like how we find those are some of the most interesting interviews in Damage. And this was really very important to me right from the get-go. I really did not want to just do a music magazine. Mm -hmm. I love music and, and I have written a lot about it and I was going out to clubs every single night uh, for years, uh, but I also, I, my own interest was in literature as a writer. So I was very interested in, and I was very interested in uh, art and in uh, visual art and in motion picture art. And so all of those things became fixed features of damage. I really saw, I, I really, my idea, I had this crazy idea and it was a kind of uh, a, a, an expression of my own grandiosity uh, and ego. But I had this idea of trying to produce uh, a New Yorker, an underground New Yorker. Hmm. The same idea, really good writing uh, about, you know, and also very peripatetic, wandering all over the place, looking at mm -hmm. all kinds of things. So, and you know, we did some of that and did other things too. I mean, and, you know, that was part, one of the things that we did from the start was engage people in all kinds of different places in New York, in uh, in Paris, in London, in uh, always in Los Angeles, um, and Seattle, and Vancouver, and Toronto, asking them to tell us about the scene, what was going on there. We were, we were very aggressive about getting the magazine circulated across, uh, across the United States and into Canada, and then eventually to Europe as well. We were very aggressive about it. Was it easy to get distribution at the time, oh, Brad? Horribly difficult. 
horribly difficult. We did all the distribution ourselves to the record stores and other venues in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Hmm. There were distributors, but they were they would you know they might take a thousand copies of the magazine at most, and then half the time they'd return five hundred. We ended up calling record stores and other venues around the country. We would we would ask the phone company to give us a, a yellow pages for Albuquerque, let's say, and we'd find look look at record stores and bookstores, find the ones that were clearly kind of interested in the in rock and roll or alternative culture, which we call alternative culture now. And we'd call them up and say, we, we have a magazine published out of San Francisco. We're covering the West Coast punk scene as well as art and whatever. And uh, would you be interested in taking some copies? And after a while, we had hundreds and hundreds of stores all across the country taking copies of the magazine and selling them. So we were making an impact far greater than we imagined. At one point, we got up to selling it or circulating almost 15,000 copies, which is a wow. huge number in those days. I mean, a vast number. But of course, it was, you know, try to get the money back from it. You know, every once in a while, we get paid. <laughs> and, you know, well, of course, advertisers then, as now, want, you know, to look at your numbers. And so mm-hmm. it's say to the big record companies, who are the only people who are willing to pay any real money, and the only people who had any real money, you know, um, well, we've got 15,000 people. If they had somebody they thought might be able to promote it for us, they might buy a back page out of the magazine. And that would be about half as much as we needed to print. Yeah. So that's how it was happening. Was the mag eventually able to sustain itself after it Absolutely. grew in size and reputation? No, <laughs> never, 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 never. And I was, and I wasn't earning any money at that point because I was really working full time on the magazine. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, yes, it kind of kept me alive, and it kind of kept a few other people alive who lived in the damaged loft, which was part of the Target lofts. I don't know how much you know about that. Whole I, I, I want to hear more. I mean, keep keep chatting, but I do want to come back to that. Absolutely. Right, well, so I mean, you know, there there were a lot of people. Uh, we had something like I don't even remember, maybe. 4,000 square feet, something huge, just vast loft. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't very improved. And when it rained, it poured. I mean, we had like a lake, Lake Lappin, um, because it was just, I mean, it was pretty primitive. I, and I, I had my, I had a bedroom set up in the elevator shaft, in the unused, disused elevator shaft, but at least <laughs> it's private. And so, yeah, I mean, it supported us. We, we lived on burritos and, and methadrine. And, um, yeah, and that that was, I mean, yeah, it paid for the electricity and the rent, and mm-hmm. and some of the time it paid for the printing costs. <laughs> sometimes, other times, sometimes. sometimes we have to go borrow the money or you know, big borrow and steal it. Put it that way. Was it was definitely living underground. There was no question about it, and um, it was fun. It was hysterically fun. I mean, you can't imagine how much fun it was. The whole scene at, I would say between 1979 and 82, or at the end of 81, certainly, it was just an amazingly convulsive, crazy uh, environment. And anything could and would happen. Anything could and would happen. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time being high, of course, like always. And a lot of time creating, a lot of time writing and interviewing and photogra- doing photography shoots. And then, then we were doing video and we were doing a radio program and oh, we were building an empire. I mean, I was like the William Randolph Hearst of the underground, at least that's how <laughs> I saw myself. And, and, was- and you had these colleagues, you had these partners in crime as well. So you mentioned the lofts that you guys were in was also a shared space with Target well, Video was, and Subterranean. Was Joe Reese had, uh, who had been working on documenting um, the whole punk, early punk scene in San Francisco. He was he had a he he was a neon artist who uh, kind of got into video uh, right about the time punk bands started. And he started he just was connected with some of them, and he and he and his girlfriend Jill Hoffman 
um, started, and, and other people who are affiliated with him, started shooting these concerts. And, and then they put them on um, public access TV. So wow. it was really cool. And that, I mean, I used to watch that, watch them. So when I started publishing, of course we wanted, I, I approached Joe and I said, I, I hadn't really met him. And I said, how about doing a video column for us since you're, you're Mr. Punk Video? <laughs> Why don't you do a video column? Well, Joe couldn't write his way out of a paper bag. God bless him. <laughs> A great, great artist in many ways, but not a writer. But he said, sure, of course I will. So of course we ended up having to do most of the writing, but he, he, he tried, he did his best. But he approached me then, at that time I was living in North Beach, uh, as I said, uh, with Billy Off, and Billy Hawk of the Offs. He said, look, we, we have this great idea. This is what we were, we were working on the second issue of Damage. He said, we have, we have this fantastic idea. There's this loft down in the mission on 19th and Van Ness that we can get this enormous building. It's like 30,000 square feet. I don't know. It was like a giant warehouse. Unreal. And he said, we, we were going to take the whole place and how about you guys coming in? We can give you like 4,000 or 5,000. I don't even, so much space. It was just ridiculous. And, and he said, and this is what it will cost you. Well, it was more, a lot more money than I really had. But I thought, oh, and then there were all these other people going to live there, all these artists. So it was mm -hmm. like, wow, we're going to have this giant co-op. And, uh, you know, it's kind of punk cooperative. It was just really super. And uh, a lot of comic artists and other people. And it was just really exciting. So I said, okay. And I gave up my very comfortable little flat in North Beach and moved down into this like primitive you know, and that was okay for Joe because Joe had enough money. He was making money off the rest of us, of course. And he's a pretty good businessman when it comes down to it. And <laughs> I'm a bad one. <laughs> That's for sure. And so, um, but he he was very handy, you know, like he could build things. I couldn't build anything. I mean, <laughs> I, I could, my, my entire real skills was, I was a good typist. <laughs> That's the only thing I could do with my hands. So we ended, and of course, the part of the week got was the former Crisco Disco, which had been uh, some kind of like, you know, after gay after hours, the place was just smelled like Crisco when we moved in. I mean, we were, I think for the first year we lived there, we were still finding like all kinds of horrible stuff from the Crisco disco that had been secreted away into the walls. There was a bathroom, I will say that. There was a bathroom, it was primitive, but it was a bathroom. So there was a shower and a sink and a toilet. So that was enough, but we never had, for example, a kitchen. Uh, but that was all right because I told you we lived on we lived on burritos as mm -hmm. a burrito in those days, a big San Francisco style burrito that everyone loves. You know, in those days they were just on right on Mission Street, a block away. Yeah, they cost like a dollar. I mean, so it cost in the morning maybe two dollars. In the morning we would get up in the morning, well before noon, let's say sometime <laughs> late at noon, we'd get up. And we would go down to one of the Chinese restaurants that proliferated in the mission. And they all had breakfast and breakfast cost exactly $1. Coffee, eggs, however you wanted them, bacon or sausage, toast and margarine. And there you go. And $1. So we Unreal. went every single day. That's how we started the day. And then every single night around, I don't know, seven o'clock, we would send somebody out to go get burritos and we'd eat burritos or ham hamburgers from across the street. There was a joint, somebody, I don't remember the name of it or you can't recall at the moment, but, and they had just nice, lovely, greasy hamburgers and fries. Mm -hmm. So that's how we're living. How any of us survived that, I don't know. In those days, <laughs> I, oh, well, I do know. I mean, I, I know I survived because I was doing, so of course, smoking endlessly. I mean, uh, smoking just enormous. I smoked about two or three packs of cigarettes a day. Oh, man. Yeah, wow, a lot of cigarettes and some. Here's a picture of so you get an idea of what I look like then. <laughs> this is a picture that appeared. I have this my favorite picture of me from that time. It appeared in the Examiner, the San Francisco Examiner, in like 1980, when they did a story on damage and the punk scene. So they took that wow. picture. And the coolest thing about it was my mother and father, who lived in Los Angeles. 
came up to San Francisco to visit on that very weekend. So they opened up the newspaper in their hotel room and lo and behold, on the second page, there was that picture of me. That's <laughs> wild. It was so cool. It was like, see, I told you I'd turn out okay. <laughs> I'm legit. Look at me. I made the examiner. I made the examiner. And I, and it's a Hearst paper, no less. Hey. <laughs> so, <laughs> so were they supportive of you? Um, yeah, the article was very positive. And, and were your supportive. parents supportive of you? Were, oh, yeah, my parents were very supportive. They were always giving me money. And uh and my yeah, they were very, very supportive. I had very I was very fortunate in my in my mother and father. They were just very incredibly cool people, my father especially. And um and he uh, I mean he was always about you know, how are you going to live? How are you going to survive? How are you going to do any of this stuff? Hmm. And I was always about, could you give me a loan? Could you give me money? <laughs> <laughs> and my father was, my, my father was a very famous hairdresser in Hollywood. Oh, okay. And, um, and so, but he, his real passion was reading. And so he was very, he was very proud of the fact that I was a writer uh, and that I was, a, and that I was a reader too. So, hmm. That, we we really got along. We were very friendly on friendly basis. Most people, fortunately, don't have that kind of relationship with their father, but I was fortunate that I did. And he was also another thing about him. He was a phenomenal gambler. Okay. He really was good at cards, huh. and he liked them a lot. So throughout much of my misbegotten youth, he was making all this money playing poker. Uh, and then, so he always had a box full of money in the in the hall closet at home. And he was always giving me money out of the box of money. So somehow or another, I was able to avoid having to work for many years, for most, for a good part of my life. I had the longest youth of anybody probably in America at oh, that yeah. time. It went on for a long, 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 long time. And I was also considerably, remember, I was, you know, in my late 20s during the whole damage period. So Okay. So Were you I, a little older than the average member of the scene? Or San Francisco yeah, was a slightly older crowd, maybe? No, I don't know older. I mean, there were people my age, there were people who were older than I was, of course, lots of mm -hmm. people like that. Uh, and there were lots and lots of younger people. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that... Part of it was, like I said, I was even in, well into my 40s, was still pretty active in doing things, um, uh, you know, in the underground and in rock and roll scene. So I don't know, you know, I think it had a lot to do with how how you felt. I felt I felt myself part of youth culture, yeah. and I wrote as a as an editor. I wrote uh, as part of youth culture. I think the best piece I wrote for damage was a piece about you know the importance of of having uh, young people as re rebels and outsiders and i had uh, as you said there were i had a lot of brilliant people working for me people like jonathan formula and marion kester and shoshana wexler all of whom were good close friends and very Brilliant, brilliant people are. So Jonathan is gone, but Shoshana and, and uh, Marion are both very much alive. But they were very brilliant, and I'm and I really was. I mean, our collaborator, the collaborators, were almost without exception just stupendously interesting, talented people, and they, mm -hmm. they came to us out of just like you know the desire to be seen and to be heard, you know. I don't know if you know the line by Ovid, spectatum wendi and wendi und spectator ut ipsi. They came to see, they came that they themselves might be seen. Ah. That was partly how, how what was happening with the dam with damage. It became this kind of, it had a kind of centrifugal force and it pulled all these people together. And, and it, it did seem like you weren't imposing something editorially on it. A lot of it seemed to just be informed by the interests of the contributors as well. Is that fair to say? I mean, basically, we had these big editorial meetings and anyone could come to them. Mm -hmm. I had this big, long, antique dining room table that I picked up somewhere in my journeys. And and, it, and we had, I don't know, 30 chairs around it or something. You had a lot of leaves forever. And... Um, 
And people just sit, sit down and let's hear some ideas. What do you want to write about? What do you, what do you think we should do? And, uh, and I, as an editor, had a very light hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in, every, in all the, my various editorial roles, and there's been more, ap- more and uh, others after damage, I, I'm just not a heavy, I'm just not heavy about it. I mean, I really, uh, Marion Kester, I mean, sorry, not Marion Kester. Um, God, now her name is Monica, and her last name is Popped Out, was our copy editor. And she was a brilliant, brilliant copy editor. Hmm. And um, so, you know, she, I, she actually made more impact, I think, sometimes in the style of damage than I did. Yeah. Uh, because she was constantly correcting people's poor English and uh, she was really brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, but yeah, I was very fortunate in all of, in all of our writers and, coll- and contributors and collaborators and, you know, in all of the stuff we did. I mean, that, the scene itself was just filled with brilliant people, brilliant, brilliant, wonderful people. At the time, you know, sometimes we'd be fighting but we didn't think they were so wonderful. But in retrospect, almost everybody, whether I was friendly with them or not, um, had, were, they were just uniquely talented. Mm-hmm. I just, by the way, I just uh, just went and saw Flipper here in Atlanta. Two oh. weeks ago. They, I hadn't seen them. The last time I saw them probably had been back in the 80s. And they were here. Um, at um, the Masquerade, uh, which event sort of historic venue uh, in Atlanta, rock and roll venue. And so I got to hang out with them. It was really cool. It was really nice to see them. Speaking of brilliant and wonderful people. Yeah, that's, I know, was it Will Shatter who was a, a pretty regular contributor to the Pages of Damage? Well, Will, Will, and Debbie, Will Shatter and Debbie Dub were two of the first kind of important people in the scene that I met through my mm-hmm. friend Wexler and, and Michael Tracy. And um, who were, Michael Tracy had been a high school friend of mine who was living in Bay Area. Shoshana was his girlfriend. And I, had, I mean, we had been, we had worked on various projects. He, he was an actor and then a writer and poet. Um, and I met Will Shatter. At that time, he was with negative, in Negative Trend, the band. Right, negative. okay. And uh, Debbie Dub, who uh, also was from originally from Los Angeles, had lived in the city a little longer than I had, but who was very active publishing her own zine and uh, was very active in the probably the most uh, aggressive punk side of the of the scene at that time. And those were the first two people I met. Hmm. Yeah, she'll uh, will will uh, will contributed. I think the most important thing he contributed some of um, some collage that he and other material that he was doing. He was brilliant collagist, and he was of course a brilliant musician as well. Yeah, yeah. So, and but yeah, so it was very. But uh, like I said, it was very odd knowing I was going to be doing this interview. That at the same time I just had went to this Flipper concert and saw the got those got the two guys that are still part of the band, the original Ted Falconian. Um, Steve, uh, whose last name I'm forgetting, I'm sorry to say. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering, were you friendly with some of the other fanzine and magazine editors in the Bay Area? Uh, Yeah, Mickey Creep. That's right. Very, very close. Very loved him, still friends with him on Facebook. I haven't seen him in years, but uh, really a wonderful and amazing person. Uh, Really enjoyed him. I'm very close, was very close. on a friendly basis with Tim Yohannan. Of Maximum uh, Rock and Roll, that's right. Um, who else was there up there? I don't know. Um, like I said, I wasn't friends with, um, I was uh, I was friend, very, quite good friends with um, Kick Boy of, of Slash in LA. Remember, right, yeah. remember we were we were quite, at, we, we, we did a lot of distribution and a lot of, writing in LA from uh, my my goal was to try to cover all the west coast but mm-hmm. certainly LA and San Francisco so Claude Bessie was the editor of Slash yes uh, and um really an amazingly talented again amazingly talented wonderful interesting person uh who died way way too young 
-hmm. you know, very close with Brent, Brendan Mullen also, who was the um, entrepreneur of the LA mask. That's right. Was the sort of leading and most important. And then later, of course, he wrote for us, he wrote for us and, um, and we interviewed, I guess, I guess we interviewed Claude in one of the issues. I can't remember which one, but. You did, yeah, absolutely. It was a great, it was a great piece. Were you were you as interested in the stuff coming from LA personally as the San Francisco? Yeah, I was down there all the time. I was down there all the time, as it shows all the time. And then I moved yeah. back. I moved back to LA after I left San Francisco in the beginning of '82, and was very active in the scene here or there. I'm sorry, the scene there uh, up until '89 uh, or '90 when we left. I, I see similarities between Slash and Damage, but it also feels like Damage. I couldn't imagine something quite like damage coming from Los Angeles. There's definitely like no. a San Francisco art school kind of avant-garde feel to it. Is yep. I, well, it was. I mean, there some, there were, I mean, I was very close, very, very close friends with Craig Lee of The Bags. Hmm. And um, who I met, you know, I guess when we were doing the second issue and because Pat Bag is actually on the cover of the second issue, and Craig was very much part of the whole art damaged LA scene as well. And the bags were themselves. And um, and so I think there were people that were doing things that were similar to damage, but the fact is, is that LA is still more, it's still glitz, you know, it's mm -hmm. all about glitz and glamor. And there was still a lot more, there was much more seriousness about making money out of the scene because of the fact that the entertainment industry was, was more or less fully centered in Los Angeles then, as it is not today. Like, you know, half the movies being made or, or television shows being made are being made in Atlanta, of all crazy places. Huh. A billion dollar industry in the state of Georgia now. Weird, huh? Interesting. I know, you wouldn't think it was possible, but it is. And of course, Atlanta's sort of a junior LA, would be LA, <laughs> which is okay for me because I get to live here, you know, in my dotage and get to think, oh yeah, this is like home, but it's not, it's not like LA is now. So, or San Francisco, both, both places I'm not particularly fond of. Mm. Yeah, I'm fond of, in memory, I'm fond of, I don't, their most modern incarnations are not particularly appealing to me these days. I know? imagine it's changed a lot from oh. living on the cheap on on a dollar burritos and in a punk co-op with a bunch of friends. I, I I can't imagine that's possible. When I was there, we, when we were there about a decade ago, the town was unrecognizable to me. Mm -hmm. Met with a lot of people when I was up there, and they were all in despair over what had happened to the city. I mean, some of them were able to live the only reason they were able to live is because they had never moved from the top from the days of the 80s and they had like locked in rents so they yeah. could but i mean lots of the things that made san francisco so fabulous are have been lost entirely same thing with la 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 you just basically spend all your time in an automobile in traffic it seems like you know um, you know, I guess one eats well in every city in the country now. That's about the best you can say. All of rock and roll. And now people, instead of going to clubs, they mostly, I think, go to restaurants, <laughs> thinking the restaurants ought to be clubs. I don't know. You mentioned Jello Biafra uh, being on the cover of the first issue. Could you talk a bit, Brad, about his running for mayor and, and how where damage fit into that? I think you guys were quite supportive of him as a candidate. Oh, yes, I was on, I was, you know, on the committee. Certainly. Uh, I, I have to preface all of this by saying that Cello Biafra and I have not been on speaking terms for a really long time. Okay. So, okay. So I don't want to add more fuel to that fire. But I will say this, that, you know, uh, he, Jello was always an extremely ambitious uh, performer, artist. And an extremely talented one, unquestionably. I mean, when when the Dead Kennedys first started, everyone was just blown away by what a, you know, what a incredibly talented, brilliant, energetic performer he was. There was no almost it, it was his talent was palpable in the air, like sort of. So he was a, clearly going to be a star, and everyone knew it. 
uh, even in our own very small universe. And I make, you know, one of the things about San Francisco is it was very easy to be because to become a big fish in a little pond. Mm -hmm. LA was much more difficult because, you know, LA is a, even then in the eight, 70s and 80s was a big, big town. Wasn't yeah. as big as New York, but it was big. San Francisco was a tiny little town. The scene, I mean, you know, the, give you a, just if I can digress a bit. I mean, the scene was so small that we used to have like meetings, like public meetings. We were at Target where people would get together. So we would talk about threats to the punk rock scene from, from Bill Graham and 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 the big record companies and the ven big venues and was somebody not you know it's like okay so, so it idealistic pretty nuts I mean this would be like you they were called town meetings wow and, and you know maybe fifty or sixty or seventy people would show up so the scene what really was only a few hundred people and at its heart was only maybe two hundred people two hundred and fifty people mm -hmm. and then even the audiences. I mean, a full house audience might be 500 people would be massive, a massive success. Dirksen was lucky if he could get 200 people into the Mabuhay a night. I mean, half the time the Mabuhay had 50 people in it. So, you know, uh, and Paul Rapp was doing the shows at, at, um, up on California, on what street was that? On Geary, uh, on Geary, at Geary Street. And that was a huge venue. And I think even the biggest shows there Maybe there was 500 people, I don't know, at the most. Yeah. So you're not talking about a very large scene. Many people get this idea that, you know, punk, that the, the initial punk scene was pretty large. It was pretty tiny. In fact, you could know, San Francisco, you could know everybody. I mean, I knew almost everybody in the scene in, in San Francisco. Yeah. All, every musician, every artist, I mean, you know, Everybody kind of hung out together and you got to know each other. But to go back to Biafra, he was he was clearly a, a, an amazing talent. The band was quite good. Then he came up with, I think he on his own, I mean, I can't fully remember, but I think so, came up with this idea that he was going to run for mayor in the election, in the upcoming election. And Dirksen being the provocateur entrepreneur that he was thought this was the best idea I ever heard and he called me up and said you've got to support this and I was like sure that's a great idea of course I will and we had already gotten in trouble because we've been from you know the first issue of the magazine had him on the cover and uh, in a wonderful brilliant photograph by George Westcott uh, late George Westcott who was the staff photographer and then later joint staff photographers with Stefano Paolillo um, had taken this beautiful photograph of Biafra. Um, and so, and it then had made its way up to Marin County. Well, Marin County, some people saw the name Dead Kennedys and they called us up and said, we're going to sue you. You don't take that, get that name off and get these people away because we're Kennedys. And we, and we, you can't say this. And they go ahead. That's the best thing we've ever heard. Sue us, please. Sue say the scandal. I mean, this was like, we thought, oh, this is going to be like amazing. The Kennedys are going to sue us, the magazine for using, even though we have nothing to do with like the band. I mean, but Biafra, he was also excited about it. We were like, yeah, this is free publicity of the best possible way. They, of course, backed down, nothing happened. But but he just, I mean, it was a great publicity stunt and it caught on and everybody thought it was the funniest thing in the history of the world. And he and he had he was he was just that talented that he could make it happen. Yeah. And it was hysterical. And we loved it and we supported it and gave him not only lots of publicity, which we did, but a lot of support in terms of all the people that were working for us, where we were mobilizing to, for his campaign. At the end of the day, he got a respectable number of votes for, for a, something that was basically a publicity stunt. Yeah. But it was an important publicity stunt. And like a lot of his work at that time had, um, had a distinct political, remember the San Francisco scene, what makes it unique is that it was the most political of all the scenes in 
of the country and in the world. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe the British scene was as political, but it was certainly not more political. It was very, very political. And there were a lot of very left-wing bands in those days. The Dills, of course, uh, and Red Rockers and Dead Kennedys, everybody. I mean, they're, 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 you know, we were all definitely on the left. I mean, and we were all, some of us, some, some of us came from a long history of activism. I did, for example, I had been very active in the anti-war movement and, and my family had long Marxist uh, roots going back to Russia. Mm -hmm. So um, my father was a Trotskyite. So yeah, I mean, the, the San Francisco scene, really, there was a lot of very distinct political activity going on. I mean, there was, we, I mean, this a part of these town meetings was all about the politics of punk rock. And it, I think what, in my mind, it feels a little different from the British scene in that there's, there's some, it's shot through with some black humor as well, too. Like it's, it's a very knowing, I can't imagine a band like Discharge coming from San Francisco. Well, it was just like, you know, I mean, we, Biafra's, you know, Biafra was from Denver. His mother, I think, was a librarian, or and you know, so he came out of this kind of a middle class. We, I mean, we all basically, most of us, came out of middle class, mm -hmm. and um, um, and and that of the great American middle class, as you put it. Whereas in Britain, you have this whole working class ethos that didn't really exist here. Uh, the kids. All the kids were really from middle class or or upper middle class families, and and had the privilege of being able to be artists and had the privilege of being able to be political activists in many cases, uh, and uh, there wasn't a kind of working class ethos that I mean there was that was kind of imposed artificially. Hmm. A lot remember a lot of this was. I mean, and I was coming out of this also, you know, from the perspective of someone who was gay, and there was this kind of gay underground, uh, in the underground. Within so there, it, like within the subculture, there was a subculture. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, there were a lot of, you know, gay men um, who were in positions of tremendous power in the, in the little punk scene. Mm -hmm. So you had, you, you had me, I was doing the magazine, and then you had Dirk Dirksen, who was doing the biggest venue, the most important and ongoing venue, who was also gay. And then you had uh, numbers of different people in the bands, some of the biggest bands, who some some of the people in those, whether, like I said, Craig Lee is one example. And um, I don't I don't really get how it's been out, all kinds of people who may still be alive, so I won't go into yeah. that. But, um, so yeah, there and this and there was this kind, and San Francisco had this huge gay scene, and that gay scene was uh, anathema to most of us in the punk scene, because it was very, as even though it was anathema to the overgrounders and to the to the main society, to the to us they were like cloned, you know, um, very straight. I mean, in the in the worst senses of the world word. So they we didn't have any. There wasn't a real sense of like, oh yeah, there's a connection between being gay and being punk. Hmm. Like, there wasn't. And it, and Craig Lee, for example, he and I first started talking about this because he would he a lot of people knew that he was gay and he was getting razzed and really, I mean, threatened all the time in L.A., especially when the hard when the scene became more hardcore. Mm -hmm. Hardcore kids were really violently uh, homophobic. I mean, they were really, they were all from like, you know, Orange County at first, and they were scary. A lot of them were right wing, scary, would be little Nazis. In your time in San Francisco, did you see the scene evolve in any kinds of ways? And, and did oh, you God. notice sort of traces oh. of that coming oh, yes, to the North? And we, we published. We published a, the, one of the best issues there, I think, that was ever published by Damage is, is the Damage Double, which is about hardcore. Yes, and written by written by Jonathan Formula, Jonathan Pled, and a brilliant, I think, some of the most brilliant writing ever, not only in Damage but in just in, of that period, in which he discusses and interviews all of these things. Yes, of course, when they when the hardcore kids first came 
to San Francisco, were brought up to San Francisco to play the venues. Uh, there was a just, oh my God, that was scandalous. People were outraged. They wanted, they wanted the band. They wanted, no, how dare they come to our venues? They're, they're, how dare they beat us? They, you know, because it was quite violent, mm -hmm. dancing at the rest. Well, you know, my position about I me, mean, I was like, God, you people are just missing the point. I mean, mm -hmm. this it has to evolve. It can't stay the same old tired thing. And that was, of course, one of the reasons that that Search and Destroy ceased publishing is because they all thought things weren't changing, were changing, you know, had lost the initial energy. Yeah. And I was like, well, of course the initial energy is going to change. Constantly was changing all the time. Sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad, most often for the bad, mm -hmm. uh, because it was becoming more commercialized people. As you would expect, you know, you can only live without a money uh, for so long. And after a while, of course, you can only do so many drugs without the without them affecting you. And that the drugs are generally, generally the biggest problem with underground life in my experience is um, you start doing them and, and everyone starts doing them and eventually they kind of burn out the whole system. Happened, it happened in the 60s and it happened again in the 80s with punk rock and the whole punk rock underground scene there. People, and you know, I mean, people generally the same kinds of drugs, whether it's uppers or downers, whether, you know, heroin or, or methadrine, um, you know. And I, I was uh, particularly fond of the, of the of the form of the latter. No, I was never a heroin addict, but I knew plenty of people that became heroin addicts from the scene. And yeah, it burned out a lot. Of, burned a lot of us out. You know, I mean, can you say? <laughs> I mean, when I quit publishing, I quit because number one. Well, number one, first we were in the middle of the Reagan uh, recession of 1981, 82, and that was a terrible, terrible recession. And so there was no advertising money available. So we couldn't get any, we couldn't sell advertising. Mm. And it was just impossible. So we couldn't get any, and advertising, of course, is the fuel that, you know, runs the, the great, you know, machinery of, of publication. It costs, you know, costs a lot. And I was burnt out. I was tired. I was really, really tired. And I was tired of being, of my 15 minutes of fame was it got you know everywhere I, I went everywhere and I got in everywhere and I wasn't like I didn't like what what it had turned me into which was you know a, a, a Z grade celebrity thinking I was an A grade don't you know who I am <laughs> I actually read the examiner I actually said those words to a guy <laughs> to a guy at a, at a door to a doorman I said don't you have any idea who I am <laughs> I had then I started laughing at my own self. I was like, you, you, who are you kidding? <laughs> that and 25 cents will get you a cup of coffee. Well, one dollar will get you breakfast. <laughs> Two bucks will get you a burrito. <laughs> yeah. So that was basically it. So I kind of I just burnt out. I mean, I burnt out. And I wanted to go back to writing on a serious level. I felt like, you know, I wanted to write fiction and I I was really kind of, I was like. I was tired of writing about the same old stuff. It seemed like everything was this was just repeats of what we had already said. So, and then I, you know, so, and we didn't have any money to keep publishing and, oh, you know, blah, 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 you know, the usual thing, everything conspired. And I was like, and I was burnt out in San Francisco. It was fucking freezing there all the time. I wanted to go to the beach. And you, and you can't go, there's no beach in San Francisco that's worth going to, let me tell you. So I was like, okay, I'm going back to LA. And, you know, I went back to LA and lo and behold, I got a lot of work there um, writing for other magazines and other public, small publications, and eventually got copy editing, uh, copywriting work um, on a, a kind of good gig and, um, and was able to spend a lot of time at the beach. A lot of time. <laughs> jealous, <laughs> jealous. Don't rub that in. It's freezing. I, hair. I, had, a, I had a great tan and <laughs> blonde hair, um, and had a good time. And I would, and you know, I had because of damage. I mean, I got. I was on every guest list there ever was at any time. So I've never, never had to pay 
and to go to shows because I'm always on a guest list. Were you still connected with the music scene at the time? Oh, after absolutely, never. I've never stopped being connected with the music scene. I mean, maybe now. I mean, even when I first, when we first moved to Atlanta, I was still writing for writing and interviewing bands and and um, and I was offered, you know, to do the music called the arts and music columns for the alternative paper here, which is called Creative Loafing. It was quite large in those days, of course, in the 90s before the net. <laughs> but I didn't want to go back to that craziness again. So, mm -hmm. so um, yeah, so I mean, I've never stopped. And in those days, I mean, I mean, because I knew everybody in the LA scene quite well, um, I was, you know, very well connected with pretty much of the, the best venues, including Anti-Club. And my friend J J Jim Van Tyne was one of the founders and, and the founder of theoretical, uh, of the theoretical parties. And so, yeah, so, I mean, I was very much involved with all of the, with the music scene throughout the, from, I would say, you know, from the mid seventies. And I mean, I started going to concerts when I was in the sixties. But I was very, you know, pretty central in the music scene from the time I with Damage in '79 up until I would say, I don't know, the mid '90s. Hmm. So, um, as far as the art scenes, well, that's I mean, when I went back to LA, that's when LA started to actually develop an art scene. It was really kind of big, and that's and that's when I started. I really started getting into you know more of the visual art scene which uh, continues to be a major interest of mine at this time. Right now I'm trying to finish a novel, so we'll see how that goes. Oh, amazing. Yeah, and the novel is a kind of interesting book because it, it's, I mean, I, I, <laughs> only because, I, well, I, mean, I hope for lots of reasons, but mainly I think because it's not set in any particular period. It could be set in the 70s, but then again, it could be today. I know. So, and so I'm having a very interesting time trying to avoid saying what time it really is. Because some things are eternal after all, let's face it. Rock and roll being one of them. Absolutely. And is, is this the first novel you've tried? I know you've written poetry and, and short fiction. Yeah, I've written, you tried yeah, a novel no, I, before? I, no, this is certainly not the first book I've attempted. I've just It's the one that I've gotten the farthest in as far as I have, you know, lots of stories and I have longer pieces, but this one is the, what I I think is kind of the comeuppance of all of these years of work and toil and sturm and drang uh, really kind of come together in my, the back of my kind of shrinking brain pan to write this story about, you know, um, a lot of it is like set in, in, the underground, the the world mm. that I know the best, the only world I've really ever known. Yeah. To be so that sounds intriguing, and also it sounds gratifying that it's all. It seems to be coming together for you. It does. Yeah. So what else can I tell you? What else would you like to know? I get. Uh, I always ask this question. I'm sure people hate it, but what do you see as the legacy, or maybe the major accomplishments of Damage? It had a short run, but it had a, a really like. It was a strong run. Yeah. What do I see as its legacy? Well, I think the, I mean, I was asked that question several years ago and I think my re response at that time still ensues. I think that the project demonstrated that number one, it was the, the it, it was the work of many hands mm -hmm. and a collaboration, a collaborative experiment that, um, succeeded way beyond anyone and everyone's wildest dreams in the sense of that we proved that we could you know work together on a volunt in this kind of voluntary voluntary cooperative without very much money and with a little bit of organization put out a project that could touch the lives of thousands of people maybe that's nothing these days compared with the net where you touch hundreds of thousands or millions. But given where we were at then, the fact that let's say that 
40 or 50,000 people got their hands on an issue of damage maybe at the end of the day as it passed around. Maybe that would be, maybe that's too much, I don't know. And who knows how many people, like I told you, the scenes were not very large. So, but those people had an impact far greater than their numbers would suggest. Mm -hmm. Many of the, many of these artists, I don't think any of us really thought that punk rock was going to, there'd be a second and a third and a fourth wave of it or, or generation of it. I, I mean, I, it, I think a lot of us who were part of that first generation, who were the progenitors, if you will, are completely shocked that kids are still, you know, punk, like we said, punk may be dead, but I'm still dying. And so it's like, uh, yeah, it's kind of amazing. So what was the legacy? Well, I mean, the le what's the legacy of art in general? I mean, it keeps, keeps civilization alive. It is civilization in its essence. Um, uh, you know, we, I'll go back to what I really said initially when I asked about damage and what was punk rock in a television program back in, let's say, 80. And I said, well, it's a stance of absolute defiance. Mm -hmm. And I think I still believe that that's the definition that ensues best uh, and that covers really what we saw it as we were like defiantly. We were defiant and we were like opposed to mainstream commercial capitalist culture. And that's part of our legacy is that we made that, made art out of that and made art that continues to resonate, right? I mean, yeah, that's I, I mean, thing, isn't it? Shocking. I mean, I, I was I was born probably around the time where Damage stopped publishing and uh -huh. it and it resonates with me. It, it's just one of those publications that and yeah, embodied that defiance in, in quite a special way. And, and you know, 40 years later, here I am talking to you about it. So, <laughs> those, 40 years, something. those 40 years went by really fast, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, and I mean, I think that most of us who were part of that scene, um, those of us who survived, um, and sadly, so many don't, um, but those of us who survive when we get together and when we talk about it we are pretty surprised that the the kids are that are still that the people are still that interested mm -hmm. uh, something that really was quite you know um unique for its time and and of its time i mean punk rock and the whole counterculture and the fact that we i guess another thing i would say is that many of us are appalled at the lack of a counterculture now compared to what we had. Hmm. We're very privileged that we're part of this unique event in the history of the world. I mean, there's never been, I mean, uh, something like, I'm just not talking about punk rock, I'm talking about the entire counterculture starting in the 60s and dying out, let's say in the 90s. I mean, this was an amazing phenomenon to be part of. And you could go anywhere. Like, I mean, I could go to Los Angeles or New York or Chicago or New Orleans or Miami or, or Vancouver uh, or Toronto and connect instantly with artists, filmmakers, musicians, poets in venues and in coffee houses and on the street. And we all saw each other and we all wore the same costumes, basically. Yeah. That was something else that is very shocking to many of us now is how boring and, and unimaginative it <laughs> compared to us. I mean, when you think of the way the, the costumes that we wore, I mean, we walked down the street, you took your life in your hands because there were a lot of people who wanted to beat you up or shoot you once yeah. they saw you, you know, if your hair was spiky or crazy colored or you were wearing all black and, uh, and you know, and, and, and Doc Martens or, you know, creepers, whatever. And, you know, it was just, I mean, it was just an amazing scene to be part of. That I, I miss terribly. I really, really miss it and and miss it not for myself so much because, you know, hey, I already had lots. I had lots of innings, as they say, but I miss it for kids. I really do miss it for kids who are in their 
teen, late teens and 20s and even their 30s. I mean, they, they had no idea how cool it was. I, at this concert we went to at the Masquerade, you know, this Flipper concert, the band that was played, the, they, were, they were opening for a very popular band called, oh gosh, I've never even heard of them before. Eric? Oh no, he would probably remember. <laughs> He's my memory, but for this band, and, they, and, they, and the kids really, really responded well to Flipper. They were like really excited. The place was sold out. But mm -hmm. the band that they, and the, the band that was playing was very supportive, according to uh, Ted Falcone and Flipper, was very supportive of, you know, very interested in, in first generation punk bands and uh, really wanted to support them because, and their music, you know, was just, it's just two guys. Um, God, I can't remember their name. Their audience was, I was amazed when I was watching the band Flipper play, the audience loved them. The audience, mm. and the audience was very excited, but, and they were pretty colorful compared to the audiences I've seen at other concerts nowadays, but nothing compared to the, the panoply of glamour and, and glitz and craziness that was part of like the scene when I was, you know, in my 20s and 30s. A mighty big thanks to Brad for sharing the story of damage with us. Again, you can access the full run of damage at circulationzero.com. That's it for us at Rock Grit. Thank you so much for tuning in. It means a lot. If you like the show, please leave a review or a rating. We would greatly appreciate it. You can find us on Twitter and connect. Our handle is at Rock Pod. Take good care. Until next time.